Welcome back to Knocked Up, the podcast about getting pregnant with Dr. Radia Lou from Women's Health Melbourne. Welcome, Radia. Thank you. Today we're talking about a bit slightly controversial topic and I just want to be clear that we're just touching on this and there are far more specifics, but it's very interesting. Um, and that's how does religion affect fertility? We're going to cover today Catholicism, Christianity, Islam, Hindu, Buddhism and Judaism. As we said, just a brief overview. There's so much more information available about this online. Um, but over to Radia to start. Well, in Australia, uh, I can say that in my practice, I've treated women and men from all of the major religions. Uh, and there are lots of different sensitivities, uh, especially regarding IVF. Uh, and um, I just thought it was worth canvassing this topic. Uh, it's something that is very, very important to some people and is less important to others, yep. even members of that faith. Uh, but as a doctor, understanding where people come from, where they um, look to for advice mm -hmm. in regards to fertility and ensuring that our practice is sensitive yes. and supportive yes. and working within the framework that's acceptable to patients. Yep. I think that's really very important. Yeah, I have to say in researching this topic, it's it's fascinating. Yeah, it's just really interesting. Well, let's start with Christianity. Yeah, so we've split out Christianity and Catholicism because there's a bit of a different view as we know. What um, start us off? So obviously there's lots of different uh, denominations within Christianity and, and I suppose any statements we make are pretty sweeping statements and of course. individuals might feel you know very strongly about one aspect or another now obviously in terms of IVF it's a technology that really emerged as experimental in the late 1970s so any take that religious leadership has on this technology has been something of the modern era yes it's it's new and there's nothing really in ancient texts that specifically guides principles to IVF, but uh, a lot of the religious leaders look to ancient texts for principles that might guide decision-making. And I suppose these things do change as our attitudes change. But I think it's really important to understand that IVF, when it first became available, was very experimental. It was something that people had never heard of before, whereas individuals who are born today, it's kind of just part of the vernacular. Everyone knows what IVF is and it's, it's just part of what fertility yeah. treatment can offer. But the first uh, principles about IVF was that uh, we put uh, egg and sperm together outside of the body, which is really the first time that that has been done. And we potentially create the earliest stage of human life outside the body as an embryo. Yes. And so when we started looking at embryos in the lab, people started asking questions like, when does life begin? Absolutely. And when yeah. does the soul begin? Yes. And I think one of the concerns of um, Christians accessing IVF is concerns about making lots of embryos that are in the freezer perhaps interpreted as the earliest stage of human life that may not actually be used to make a baby. Yep. So that's that's a big concern. 
Having said that, many Christian denominations uh, have come to terms with IVF as part of the modern fertility treatment armory and are supportive. And I, I do have patients who we can use this technology while respecting their beliefs about not having too many embryos in the freezer. Yep. And one of the really amazing developments that's let that happen in the last five years is egg freezing because we've become very good at egg freezing. Yes. We can now put a woman through an IVF treatment and collect eggs, which are unfertilized eggs, decide to fertilize a fraction of the whole and freeze the rest of the cohort of eggs that we collect as not, eggs. not considered to be a life. Exactly. It's a, it's a building block towards making an embryo, but it's not in itself a potential life. It requires a sperm and fertilization. So I've had several examples of patients in my practice who are devoted Christians and mm-hmm. who did need IVF for various reasons. Otherwise, they would not have been able to have a baby with their own egg and sperm. Um, an example that comes to mind is one of my patients who had really extreme endometriosis and blocked fallopian tubes. And there was no way that she would ever get pregnant naturally. I have another patient um, who comes to mind whose husband's sperm was very, very low in count despite all uh, any all um, treatments that would, would not be able to, to fertilise an egg in, in nature. So in those two couples what we did was we took them through an IVF cycle and stimulated the ovary, made eggs... Um, both of them, we were talking about making baby number one, so they weren't averse to having any embryos in the freezer. They just didn't want to have so many embryos that it was likely that they'd need to discard them. Exactly. And and they also felt, both these couples said to me, that we will use all the embryos that we have. Mm-hmm. So they felt very strongly that that they would use, they would come back to use those embryos because yep. they didn't want them in the freezer. Yeah. Um, to be left forlorn and so that would mean that if they were successful and they had multiple embryos they might feel the absolute need to have multiple children that they otherwise hadn't planned on having. Yep. Anyway so we decided in both those cases to use 10 eggs uh, for insemination and um, this is just the background of that is that not every egg fertilizes. We expect in IVF about 60 to 70% of the eggs that that do develop to fertilize. And we expect on average about two to three embryos from 10 eggs. Yep. Um, once the embryos have gone on to develop and, and continue to the point of blastocyst, which is a day five embryo. So that was our plan that we would fertilize 10 and any additional eggs would be frozen as eggs. And so that just goes to show you how we can adapt our technologies to um, accommodate religious beliefs. Mm-hmm. And I think fundamentally all religions encourage reproduction and that's that does support some the intervention of modern medicine. Yeah. And the reason that we've kind of taken Catholicism out of the um, group of the other Christian traditions is that there's been very clear rejection of IVF technology by the Catholic Church at the highest level um, ever since IVF was uh, really conceived as a clinical possibility for mainstream practice and that was at a a papal level Mm -hmm. and there's never been a rethink on that um, stance. Okay. And so practicing Catholics decide that IVF is not an option for them. Yep. 
And I think the basis of that was partially to do with the fact that embryos might be in the freezer and might be discarded. Okay. But part of it was also about um, an interpretation of the act, the sexual act between a married man and woman as being the only permissible way for life to come into being. And I think those two principles together are the main uh, reasons that the Catholic Church um, to this day uh, does not condone IVF. Now, of course, not every person of the Catholic faith um, would strictly necessarily adhere to that. And I've treated patients before who make a conscious decision not to follow the faith on that, but many would. And it's important to respect the patient's decisions and beliefs. Um, As a CREI subspecialist, you know, I would treat patients who are Catholic in other ways. Mm -hmm. And there are other options that can be offered to practising Catholics without actually uh, contravening the teachings of the Catholic Church. And um, specifically, there's a lot that can be done for patients who aren't ovulating. Yes. Uh, We can surgically improve the pelvis in terms of endometriosis or if there's a partial fallopian tubal blockage, we can potentially overcome that. Yeah. Um, So really a fertility specialist review, if you are a practicing Catholic and you don't want to go down an IVF pathway, may still be the right thing for you to do to help you have a baby. Because as we've said before, there are so many steps to undertake before you even get to IVF that it's possible that you'll find the block before you get there. Yeah, there are reversible conditions and there are uh, some modifiable conditions in fertility that can assist short of IVF. And a CREI subspecialist has all the skills to use those other technologies to help women and men conceive. And of course, in my practice, IVF is only a part of what I do. And regardless of religion, a lot of people feel that they don't want to use IVF unless it's necessary. And addressing all of those factors is really important to most people. Yes. Um, but it is just important also just to stress that if you if you are a Catholic, it doesn't mean that there you'll be pressured to go into mm-hmm. treatment that is against your beliefs. Yeah. Um, certainly not. You know, we would always respect, you know, our patient's autonomy and also the, um, the I guess, the scope of under which we can practice to help a, a particular patient. Yeah. In terms of um, other major religions... Um, Two of the most liberal religions in terms, small-l liberal, yes. in terms of reproductive technology are Hinduism yes. and Buddhism. So, and India is actually quite famous for, you know, advanced reproductive technology because it is a, a, a culture that does, um, you know, kind of embrace the medical advancements in, in the field of fertility. But there are some things that are important in in Hinduism. It's important, interestingly, that a couple are married and legally married under the Hindu religion. Um, And it's also um, important that uh, sperm donors are a close relative of the husband of the woman. So this is in the case of uh, male infertility where a sperm donor is required. And there aren't really any other significant restrictions to my knowledge in terms of the Hindu religion in, in accessing 
reproductive care. It's more about maintaining the bloodline. Yeah. And um, there are some religions, of which Hinduism is one, that do promote male offspring over female offspring. And that's a, um, it is a, um, I guess, a historical um, belief and it's got, you know, something to do with, with these societies which are quite patriarchal. Mm. But in Australia, we would not support sex selection. It is, in fact, illegal. Yep. And I do get asked that sometimes in clinical practice, can we select a girl or a boy? And the answer is no. emphatically no. And I say to patients, you get what you get and you don't get upset. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. Um, in terms of Buddhism, um, Buddhism is a very peaceful religion. And famous, famous for that. Yes. And in Buddhism, the acceptance of medical treatment is all about your intention in terms of uh, what you're trying to do. And if you're trying to make a baby for a couple, if you're trying to bring life into the world, that's considered acceptable. Because it's a beautiful intention. It is a beautiful intention. Um, Buddhists do believe that life begins at conception. And they believe that embryos should not be discarded or destroyed. And um, there's also a tenet within Buddhism that stipulates the right to meet one's parents. So if embryos are donated, um, they would not be donated anonymously. But otherwise, like Hinduism, Buddhism embraces reproductive technologies. Okay, and then we've got the two last Abrahamic religions left so judaism and islam we'll start with judaism yeah so judaism's approach to fertility treatment is um there's a principle in judaism that life is the most important thing and creating life and having children is a very uh, honored principle and jewish religion does accept all forms of reproductive technology but with caveat so the caveat in, in Judaism is that you shouldn't progress to the most advanced technologies before trying lesser things, if there's mm -hmm. any chance that the lesser thing should work, so a stepwise um, progression. Yeah. Um, there's also in Judaism a um, belief that masturbation is not permitted and that becomes problematic in terms of obtaining a semen analysis. Um, and there are ways and means that a semen analysis can be procured. But basically the principles um, in Judaism is that we, uh, as fertility specialists, are asked to investigate the female thoroughly prior to investigating the male. Mm -hmm. And that is something that is not really routine. So in, no. if in, a, in a couple who religion was not at the forefront of their, um, of their thoughts when, when accessing kind of treatment from a fertility specialist, we'd usually investigate both both the male and female in parallel, especially if it was, you know, kind of something that investigating the, the female might be a more invasive kind of um, consideration, like a laparoscopy, keyhole surgery, things like that for endometriosis assessment. Yeah. We'd always ask for a semen analysis before going down that pathway under normal circumstances, but sometimes in Judaism we're asked to fully investigate the woman before moving on to investigating the, the, the male. And in that cultural circumstances, that's what's expected and what is acceptable. Um, in terms of supervision, mm -hmm. in Judaism, it's really important uh, to couples to have 100% certainty of um, 
where the sperm and egg are at every point of the process to make sure there's no mix-ups because yeah. inheritance of the religion comes down the matriarchal line mm-hmm. um, particularly and um, but also from the male perspective it's important in Judaism to ensure that the right sperm right egg and that's super important to yes. us in IVF labs under anyway, all circumstances right, yes. and, and just to reassure non-Jewish listeners we are very vigilant about that and there are, there are checks and you know rechecks every every time a sperm and egg is is moved in the lab in any way there's an ID check by two personnel who yep. look at multiple identifiers on the dish um, bear a, a medical record number and a name and a date of birth and things like that but and in fact in Australia that's part of the RTAC code of of conduct RTAC is RTAC it's the um it's the body that governs IVF labs in Australia. But um, it's especially important in Judaism and so there are personnel who are deployed by a rabbi. So it might not be the rabbi himself but it might be a supervising person who's been trained by the rabbi um, who accompanies the embryologist at every step of the way in an, in an IVF lab and is present for both egg collection and embryo transfer procedures, so a supervisor. Yes, um, and that's to make sure the chain of of process is not at all flawed or interrupted in terms of um, making a mistake. Yeah. So that, that's some interesting aspects about mm. um, the Jewish practice. Sort of eyes. Yeah. Yeah, and in terms of collecting a sperm sample in Judaism, that's actually um, collected through intercourse with a special non-spermicidal condom. And again, supervise, not the act of intercourse, but supervise <laughs> in terms of when the, the male delivers the sperm sample from his hand yes. to the lab. Right. Um, the, it's, it's supervised by a rabbi as well. Okay. Um, so that's uh, some interesting facts about Judaism. Very much so. Yeah. So Islam, the main thing about Islam in terms of um, IVF, Islam is supportive, like Judaism, um, of any technology that allows life to come into being um, it's very emphatic about the identi- identity of the where the gametes come from the the egg and the sperm mm-hmm. and um, in Islam no donor gametes are permitted so no donor sperm or yeah donor so um, I guess that's the main area of medicine where I've come you know to a point with patients who practice Islam which the end of the road for them in terms of IVF treatment may be earlier than others in that if their partner, if the male partner has no sperm, um, well, that's the end of the line for that couple. They can't have a sperm donor. And if the female has no viable eggs, she can't have an egg donor. And um, so while doors remain open to other couples from other religions, that's, that's often where the IVF journey ends for, for couples in that scenario. Okay. But in terms of um, the rest of, of the technologies we offer, um, there's no restrictions on the basis of, of religion. I'm sometimes asked in Islam about um, things like medications around fasting and things like that and can we change the timing around Ramadan and things like that, yes. especially oral medications for yes. ovulation induction. Um, and we can usually facilitate that quite easily um, by just changing the scheduling of, of various medications to make it acceptable yeah so interesting thank you so much radio pleasure 
Thank you for joining us for this week's episode of Knocked Up, the podcast about getting pregnant. For more information about Raylia, Women's Health Melbourne and how to get pregnant, please visit womenshealthmelbourne.com.au or find us on the socials under Women's Health Melbourne or you can send an email with any future episode requests to podcasts at womenshealthmelbourne.com.au. See you next week.